Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. As 2019 comes to a close, we decided to do something extra special for today's episode. We wanted to bring you the very best of all of the interviews we've conducted over the last year. The idea with this episode is to surface the gems that you may have missed the first time round so that you can really take note and learn from the experiences and insight of some of tech's most impressive leaders. In this episode, we have Mathilde Collin of Front, Sharmadine Reed of Beauty Stack, Sahil Lavinia of Gumroad, Delane Parnell of Playverses, and DHH of Basecamp, also known as David Heinemeyer Hansen. We're cooking up something really special for season three of Product Hunt Radio. Each episode focuses on a specific how-to from an industry leader. Whether that's a VC or a founder, we're going to talk to some of the most innovative and expiring minds in our industry so that you can learn from the greats. We'll have Ruben Harris of Career Karma on how to future-proof your tech career, Bill and Jeff, the founders of Redop, on how to improve your focus in a world of distraction. And we'll also have Wasim of Pilot talking about how to make business finance and accounting simple. So be sure to subscribe and watch out for season three in January 2020. Mathilde shared her lessons on building a strong company culture and the questions she asks candidates when hiring. Today we have 110 people in the team and we have about 4,700 paying customers and we're both in Paris and San Francisco. Wow, that's a lot of people. Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, I mean, relatively speaking, the the product hunt team, we've always kind of been around for the the last several years been around roughly 20 people or so and it's a good size we can get a lot done with 20 people but when when you get to 100 people that's like a whole other level of scale you know that most startup founders have not seen how have you managed that how have you also grown because this is this your first company that you started or have you have you had other companies in the past no so it's um it's my first company before before doing front i worked for one year in a startup but that's the extent of my work experience so really it's the first time i'm building a company and pretty much the first time i'm actually working so i'm figuring out everything as i'm doing it and you know it's funny because on on the topic of 100 employees Every founder I've talked to tells me that, you know, one day you realize that the company that you're managing, because it has uh, reached a certain size, really feels very different from the early days when you were 20. And the truth is, I still haven't felt that way. Like, I still know every person in the team. I still feel like, you know, communication is happening and everyone knows what's happening at front. And so maybe I will, you know, a year from now when we have a, another conversation, maybe I will say something different. But even if, of course, things have changed, they don't seem radically different to me. Yeah. How have you managed now that you kind of have you have two offices? That's I've actually worked at previous companies that have multiple offices, multiple headquarters. And I saw some challenges with that where you had sort of two different cultures emerge and different ways of communicating across. It, it, at the time, I was in Portland and Vegas. And that was a really a very difficult thing and in some ways harder than, than building and operating a fully distributed team. 
How have you managed that with the Paris location and San Francisco location? So I think there are two kinds of things we do. One is what do we do at a company level so that everyone is on the same page? And then two is what do we do specifically with the Paris office so that we don't create two different cultures? So I can talk about both. Just specific to Paris, the first thing is anytime someone joins the Paris team, they start by coming a few weeks to San Francisco. So we make sure that, you know, they know everything, everyone. And two, we do company offsites at least once a year and everyone is flying to wherever the offsite is happening. And so then we make sure that the teams are spending time together. Three, usually in Paris, there is always at least one person from the SF office so that we make sure that the culture is the same. So that's what we do specifically for, for Paris. And then at a company level, we make sure that we're a very transparent company. So one, everyone knows everything about the business. Two, everyone knows everything about our values and what they mean. And these values are the same in SF and in Paris. I don't know if you, if you saw, we actually published a culture book where we explain exactly what it means to have a value like transparency, low ego, high standards. And by giving super concrete examples, then we can make sure that people are living the values in the same way. So I guess, and also, obviously, we're using this wonderful tool called Front that helps us be on the same page. And that's why communication flows really well between two offices. How do you interview or test for culture? Because that's always a hard thing is when you're meeting someone for the first time and you, you might speak with them for 30 or 60 minutes, how do you make sure that they kind of qualify or, or, or match the culture that you're trying to build? It's a good question. So first of all, I think that, you know, the way you can scale that is just making sure that everyone you hire leaves the values the way you mean them. And then these people will interview other people. I have specific questions for each value. So I can give you one example. One of the questions that I like to ask because I want to uh, know if people are low ego is um, so let's say you're interviewing for a product manager position, and I will ask you on a scale from zero to 10, zero being you don't know anything about product management, and 10 is the best product manager you can ever be. So surrounded by the best people in the you know best environment, and so you, you fulfill your full potential. Where are you at right now? on a scale from zero to 10. So I could, I could have asked you this question, right? But anyway, the reason I'm asking this question is because I don't want people to tell me anything higher than, you know, six or seven, because what I want to ask is really, what's your potential? Like, do you think you can be 10 times better than what you are? Do you think you can be 10% better? And usually if some people don't listen to the question really well and are really willing to tell me that they're really great. And so therefore we'll give a high number versus like, if you're really great and you really have a ton of potential, then you're comfortable saying a low number. So that's one example, but we overall, we just share examples of questions that can test for different values. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And we all, we can all learn more. And I think the most experienced people start to understand and identify there are things that we don't know we don't know <laughs> in every yeah. function. And when I think about myself, my background is in product management. And, um, you know, I've gotten much, much, much better than I was before, but I could also be much, much, much better <laughs> in the future. Yeah. And so I, I like that. That's an interesting question. I agree. I think there are a few misconceptions about more senior people, one of them being they, they know everything. But another one is also that I've realized is you tend to think that because people are more senior, they shouldn't be as hands-on. And the truth is, you know, when you join a company, 
as senior as you are, the main thing that you should do when you join is being super, super hands-on. So you're a sales leader, you will sell the product. You're an engineering leader, you will actually either code or run with a project. And you should always look for people that are mature enough that they understand that they have to be hands-on in order to be the best version of themselves. Yeah, I'll, I'll actually give the example of my father. So my my parents started, they've been working as entrepreneurs together uh, for a while, and they, they started this company. And part of the, the operations of the business are actually getting into pulling out recycling of garbage cans. And in the beginning, my dad spent the first, uh, I don't know how many weeks, getting into garbage cans. You know, he's at the time was, what was he, mid-40s, early 50s. And so he's getting into garbage cans and pulling out recycling and, you know, not, not the most fun job, but for him, it was super important to fully understand what it was like to operate, you know, what his employees and team would have to do and really fully understand the business. And so, you know, if, if you think, I think going to the more software kind of startup world, if you think you're too, too good to write code or too good to do sales, like, I don't know, think about my father jumping into garbage bins. <laughs> like, right. That's a really good example. And, and I think it's, you know, it applies for leaders, but, but one lesson that I learned, not even for leaders, but for our first employees is as a founder, you should probably do all these jobs first before hiring for people. And one example of a mistake I've done when uh, we were super early is, uh, hiring for marketing. So I thought, you know, I don't know much about marketing. I don't really know how we'll generate more awareness and more leads to front. And therefore, I will just hire someone that will figure it out. And I tried to figure it out myself and I couldn't figure anything out. So I decided to hire. And then I had a super hard time hiring because I didn't really know what I was looking for. And so I made two hires, didn't work out. And then I changed my strategy. I felt like, you know, for the things that I knew were working. So for example, I was selling the product and I was successful selling the product. So I hired an account executive and he did the job and he did the job really well. And that freed up some time so that I could figure out marketing. And then I realized that in marketing, there are some things that were working. So for example, co-marketing was working really well because we integrate with some products and so we can co-market the product. So I decided to hire a partner marketing manager and I knew that it was working. And I think it's a, I, I, that's just my experience and, you know, it's my only company. So this is what it is. But uh, I've really learned that you need to do the job first before hiring someone so that you know exactly what you're looking for. And this person is set up for success. Sahil told the story of Gumroad and explained some of the challenges that come with taking venture capital. We raised a bunch of money. We raised over $10 million from a great list of investors, did that for three, four years, realized while we tried to raise a Series B, that that was unlikely to happen for us. We went from 20 employees to five employees to sort of get to profitability. So we, you know, could continue to support these creators that, you know, were making two, two and a half million dollars a month through our platform. And so we did that. We went from five to one when I, you know, when I was able to run the thing by myself. And since then, luckily, we've been able to sort of grow the team again and things are going great. We're now processing six million dollars a month for creators the future is bright. We've processed, yeah, over $200 million to date. We're still sort of, it feels like eight years later, we're in the early, you know, the first inning, I guess people say. And it's weird because, yeah, I wrote this post that sort of, it felt like sort of like a, a it was a reflection, you know, and it, it, but it, but it wasn't, it wasn't sort of like, this is what happened. 
it was like, this is what has happened so far. Well, it was just funny because I get into these conversations with people and uh, sometimes they're like, well, you're not, you, you haven't failed to build the billion dollar company. Technically, it's still a possibility. And I'm like, well, maybe uh, that's not my goal anymore. And I think sort of the important sort of the, I think the, the reason that article did as well as it did was because it was about this realization that, that uh, the focus on sort of the binary goal of building a billion dollar company, that was sort of probably misplaced a little bit. And that was sort of the, 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 the learning that I think sort of encaps, encapsulates the, the essay. Um, but I think, you know, there's sort of this inherent scoping to the article, which is at this point, right? I can't predict the future, but so far I have not built a billion dollar company. That is something that is true. And, and I'm not a failure. I'm just a failure to have done that, right? That specific goal that I sort of tweeted about publicly has yet to happen. And so, yeah, it's just kind of interesting, the sort of the specificity that is sort of implied by, you know, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company. Yes. There's a lot to unpack in what you said just now. You talked about raising over $10 million. You talked about getting to this point three to four years into the company where you're raising your Series B. You're realizing it's not going to happen. You know, as the journey to keep Gumroad alive and keep the mission alive and ultimately serve this huge community that you have and you just cannot abandon, right? In, in that journey, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, like, you know, what are my priorities? Are my priorities going for round after round or are my priorities being sustainable that I can continue to serve? these people. And I guess it's quite interesting because I feel like one of the things that your followers and your fans like know you for is those very candid reflections on startup culture and founders' lives and the pressure that you have once you take VC to keep growing and, and keep accelerating. So I guess what I want to ask you rather controversially is if you were starting Gumroad again, would you do it all the same? Like, would you still go through all those funding rounds and take all that outside investment? Honestly, I think the answer is is probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I probably would have had a different strategy around spending the money. Normally, there's sort of a it's kind of like a leading question a little bit sometimes when I get it. Normally, it's like, hey, given what you know about VCs now, would you want to work with them again? Which you know, it's kind of it's most of the time when people sort of ask me that question, they want me to confirm their biases that like they should not be raising money. I think one of my strengths, if I can say that, is that I try not to have an opinion necessarily. Um, even with that article that I wrote, the, the strongest opinion was that I sort of explicitly said in the article was the binary goal of, of building a billion dollar company was terrible. But in terms of raising money, hiring fast, and all of the the lessons that are sort of spewed out of Silicon Valley and I mean that not geographically, but just sort of the collective, you know, brain of Silicon Valley. And most of those things come from, you know, from real true experiences. And I think there's an effort sometimes to sort of invalidate those. But I, I do think there there is there are demands that come with raising venture capital, right? And so um, if you raise $10 million like we did, there is an expectation that the company has a good shot or not even a good shot, but like a, a more than 10% shot at building something that is sort of is going to, you know, 10 X sort of, you know, increase the value of the stock by an order of magnitude, because that's just how venture works. And I think if you're not, if you're not aware of those things, you should not be raising venture capital. And actually it's interesting because 
I was talking to someone the other day um, and I was like, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to people when they raise venture that like this is sort of an expectation. And he went through YC, which is something I did not go through. And he said, actually, it's not as much of a of an assumption that you might think. There are a lot of founders that sort of get swept up into this thing and raise, you know, one, two, three million dollars in the seed round at the end of Y Combinator and then realize, holy shit, like I didn't, we really, you know, we're on this path now. And so, yeah, if that's happening to you, I'm super grateful that hopefully my, my essay, my article and my tweets sort of are opening up sort of, you know, these insights a little bit. Conversation. You know, yeah. Opening up the conversation in a way that hasn't happened yet. Um, or at least, you know, is happening more now. But for me personally, I, I sort of came into it pretty open-eyed, you know, or wide-eyed. I went, Gummerd was my second startup experience after working at Pinterest as the second employee over there. So I had sort of seen that happen over there. And so I was pretty familiar with sort of the expectations around around raising venture capital. I think one of the sort of not great things about VC is that you're stuck with them. And so even, you know, even with this sort of goal of building this billion dollar company, when, you know, five, six, seven years go by and that doesn't happen, there's not really an exit strategy. You're kind of stuck there. And one of the things that I've realized over the last, just since that article came out, dozens of founders, and these are founders that have, you know, raised money and done YC and are profitable or all these things like very successful on paper. And they're like, I don't know what to do. Like, I have this company and makes three, four, five million dollars. It's, you know, two, three, four, five employees, maybe more. Everyone gets paid pretty well, but I don't, I can't leave. I don't, you know, like I, you know, I have this relationship with my investors that is kind of weird. And I don't, you know, like, what do you do in that state? And I think it's sort of an unanswered question because it's new. You know, there, there's probably hundreds of these companies and, and you know, that, that five, 10 years ago, there would have been zero. Because, you know, the this sort of batch of, you know, thousands of white combinator companies and things like that, that all raise venture capital, most of them actually, there's this sort of, I think, myth a little bit that like all these companies fail and like, you know, 1% of them make it. But actually like 30 to 40% of them end up being pretty good, viable businesses. They're just not exits for the, for the, for the investors. And so what do you do with those companies? And I think we got lucky. Uh, where Kleiner sort of imploded and then wrote off their investment in Gumroad. And that sort of saved the company, you know, and that has nothing to do with what I did. It just happened to me. And so I'm grateful for that. But, you know, I think about that, right? Like, what if that didn't happen? Uh, we would still would have been underwater, you know, $17 million in liquidation preferences. How would I have motivated myself to kind of get out of that sort of that, that abyss of like, I had built this thing. It was cool. It was working, but like, I'm never going to see a dime from it. Sharmadine talked us through the unique way she ran her fundraising process, the importance of storytelling, and has lots of useful tips for founders who are raising VC. So I'd love to focus a bit on Beauty Stack. Uh, so there was some great news that came out earlier this year that you raised your four million pound seed round, which is awesome. Great investors like Index and Local Globe. Reflecting on that fundraising journey versus, let's say, starting out with One Nails ten years earlier, what are the things that you have learned about fundraising that you feel are like founder best practices, and maybe in particular ones that 
aren't often included in, in those like lists of like, Oh, this is what you definitely have to do. Just like your own personal experience. Like what do you feel really helped you win such big names and yeah. Convince folks that this is going to be, yeah, a billion dollar idea one day. I think that the thing that really held me in good stead was the time I spent to work on my own personal and company theses. Theses? Theses. <laughs> that was the most invaluable thing I'd done. So we often sit there and have a business idea and do a pitch deck and you'll do what's called market research. But market research is not the same as writing your own thesis of how the future is going to look. So I had a private blog and I would write all my big thoughts down. So like I mentioned earlier, the future of work for women. Another one might be why the time is right right now. Another one might be why I'm the right person right now. And I would write this in a password protected blog. And anytime an investor wanted to see the inner workings of my mind, they could go there cool. and understand it because you can't get that stuff across completely in the 15, 20 minutes that you might have to pitch. But the process of doing it allows you to really, really chisel away at the, at the kernel of the idea. I moved back to my hometown for 18 months to give myself the time and space to think about my entire life, but also the time and space to think about the exact kind of business I wanted to build. So I would be deadly sure that when I entered that business, I, it was by choice because with WAR, I opened a nail salon for me and my friends and it suddenly became this huge thing and it wasn't my choice. Got it. I, I was going to be a stylist and a creative director. <laughs> you know, this thing happened to me and I was like a passive participant in... I was like, damn, I better run this business because people really like it. It wasn't a choice. So I thought about what made WAR successful and what I enjoyed doing, if it was personally pleasurable to me. And I wrote a list of all that stuff. And then I was like, well, I really like helping women make more money. So how can I do that? But also I'd really like to build a huge company, like a big global company. And obviously technology is the best way to do that. So because I'd spent so much time, mental energy on the business before I even put pen to paper, the pitch deck and the fundraising part was, I am an eternal optimist, so I always have good memories, but it was, it was, I don't want to dismiss it by saying it's effortless, but I'd just done all the hard work in my head. Got it. You know what I mean? So you had the conviction. I had the conviction. I had the answer. Every time I had a difficult, every time I had, I mean, I did loads of pitching at pre-seed, pre-seed level. So when I got my first funding from Local Globe, I pitched quite a lot. But every time I did a pitch, whatever any investor would say, I would write it down. And I'd write like three responses to it. Wow. Because when you write it, it's cemented in your head. So then the next time you pitch, it gets better and better and better until these things are rolling off the tip of your tongue and, you, and you're actually anticipating their pushback. And then what you realise is the better quality investor you get, the less like unthought through the questions are anyway. So then nice. you don't, do you get what I mean? So I think that is an important part that people don't talk about enough, which is do your homework. I would just, mm. I can't stress that enough. I would listen to every investor I wanted. If I had a meeting, I would Google them 
listen to every podcast, read every interview. I'd look at all their previous investments. I would look at when that investment was made. I'd then look at that portfolio company and think, how well are they doing now? Have they raised their next round of funding? I would try and think about why they possibly might have invested in that company and if there were any similarities to us that I could pull from. So I would go into the meetings like very, very prepared. And they might not know that because they they think I'd just be having a normal conversation. But I was tweaking my pitch every time to the person who was sat opposite me and the things that they like thought were valuable about my story. So yeah, I would say doing your homework. Also, although it seems incredibly strategic and almost manipulative, the process of doing it helps your business get better because, you know, on the whole, most of them have been incredibly successful and incredibly experienced. So if they say, we look for businesses that do, like, you know, listen to a podcast this morning and Dreesen Horowitz, it said, online to offline. And if you do online to offline, like you have a digital product that delivers a physical service or product like Uber is online to offline. You need to have hardcore operational experience and stuff, but we look for online O to O, they called it businesses. So I was like, hmm, O to O, I never thought about that. How do we fit into that? Mm. Because if we don't fit into it, then I need to do the thinking to fit into it because clearly they're very successful. Maybe I should listen to their advice. So yeah, it, it may sound stalkery and manipulative, but it helped me shape my proposition. It got better, you know what I mean? Every time. When I started working on Beauty Stack, it was actually meant to be like Tumblr for beauty. So it was a web-based product. It was going to be B2B, like a monthly subscription. Instead of reblogging or liking a picture, you would book it. And the line was like, reblogs and likes don't put food on the table, you know? Mm. But then the more that I thought about our product, I was like, this is a this is an app and actually that's a very different type of business so let let me look at all the types of businesses that fit into ours through what investors say about these types of businesses so yeah that's the level Mm. that I went to and it's almost like when people say to me that they have difficulty raising I think you know we always say in the office are you doing the most yes I love that (laughs) Delane talked about failure and how adversity throughout his life and early in his career helped him build Play Versus. Ryan Hoover, our founder, tweeted out a couple of years back during, um, I think it was like YC application season. So it was like Y Combinator, Accelerator, you know, lots of founders all around the world applying to join. Um, He often like looks over people's applications or basically like offers to help through Twitter And someone had written to him like, oh, you know, this is make or break. If we don't get in, we're going to give up. And he basically wrote this like little tweet thread saying, if you're only working on something to the point where it's validated by something else, you shouldn't be working on it. You should be wanting to work on something that even if you don't get into YC, you still have enough conviction in this idea that you're going to keep pursuing it. So I think it was really great that you reminded folks of that. Yeah, I've applied to YC too with a bunch of ideas that you know, like that 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 haven't you know ever gotten in. Things that I, I was, you know put a good team together for. We built 
you know, decent product. And so, you know, that, that never stopped me either. You know, some, obviously like I found that some of those ideas actually didn't work or they didn't make sense, but, but, um, but you have to just keep going, you know? And yes. I think all the failures really allowed me to like get to, to do this idea right. So like I had so many projects, I'll call them, not companies, but like projects that I tried to start. And for one reason or another, they didn't get off the ground. Or even if they got off the ground and, and, this, and, and defining got off the ground as in like we built a product, we had a few people in it, we weren't able to scale it because of one reason or another. And so when I, and so when I, when I went to build this company, I'd been already equipped with so much knowledge around what failure looks like, but then also a little bit of knowledge around what success looks like. And so I put sort of a process in place and not only how I was going to go through an ideation period with this idea, but I also set out like three North stars around just what I was going to work, work on to like, you know, build the sort of infrastructure to the idea. Like, here's here's what I'm going to do to set the foundation of this idea. And, you know, my thesis was that if I did these things, then, like, this idea could get off the ground. And so, um, because the business is a little bit different, this wasn't a business where we could just build a product, ship it, and then, you know, get customers and sort of grow like traditional consumer products have been able to, like we really had to, we had, it's a BD dependent business. So we had to get distribution. We had to get um, a commercial licenses from game publishers to like leverage their IP. And then from there, we need to build a product experience, but even to actually realize the, the true value of that experience, like that product, like we needed to actually launch this within high schools and, and, and see how, see how it worked within that environment. And so I just knew that the, it would take, a little bit more time than most consumer products to actually realize to bring the idea to life. Um, but I knew if I worked against setting the foundation uh, and, and if I were able to accomplish that within this sort of deadline that I set for myself, then like I could actually have some success. But I, I wouldn't have known how to go through that process had I not had failure in the past. I'm so glad that you can link those two together and connect the dots looking backwards, as Steve Jobs said, because that is incredibly inspiring. That makes me feel like wherever I am right now, even if it's not where I want it to be or where I hoped I would be on this journey of my project, my experiment, my startup, it doesn't end here. It only ends there if you are of the mindset that you're going to let it end there. And I think that's really powerful. People wrote Steve. I was watching a documentary yesterday on Netflix and you think about how many people wrote Steve Jobs off. Like at one point, I remember there was this quote where Steve Jobs said, you know, we only have 5% of the market uh, with Apple, and most people look at that as bad, but I look at that as we have five percent down, ninety five percent to go, and wow. a powerful quote, you know, and that's such a good way to ha- like that's, that's such a great outlook to have on where you are and and realizing that like just because you're there doesn't mean that that's where it ends, and and also too I like look at Steve's background. And, and you think about like his background to like especially backgrounds of underprivileged founders. He wasn't an engineer. Uh, he didn't have come from a product background. He wasn't really a strong, super strong business person. He was like a curator. He had bits and pieces of all of these different um, sort of uh, profiles, um, and he he could curate you know ideas right in a really thoughtful way. Uh, he just, he had this, uh, he just had this sort of special ability or special vision 
to like of what the world was supposed to be and, and how technology was going to impact the world, especially personal technology. And, and he, he was super convicted around that. You know, he didn't let anyone get in the way of like how he how he saw the world. And I think that that's super that's super inspiring. And we can all lean into that. Uh, and I know certainly that's like that, like Steve Jobs, because of that, like because of who he is in the way that he's done business and the success that he's had, but also the failures he's had that certainly impacted my career. Um, but I thought that that was such a it's it's just interesting, you know, like everyone only talks about the success, but no one ever talks about the failures that we face exactly. as people, entrepreneurs. Um, and, and when you go back through history, every single great entrepreneur, great person has had failures and it takes time. It just takes time. It's such a marathon. Uh, uh, and you have to you have to just keep pushing forward to to actually unlock all of the potential that you have. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And you know, what's so cool about this, this narrative of there is ability in each of us, even if we come from these less traditional, less established, less privileged backgrounds. I feel that that is a theme, which is also at the heart of play versus, because if you think about it, you're creating this global online community of amateur gamers But what's also really interesting is how you're actually starting by targeting high schoolers. So these are folks who can actually turn their experiences in gaming into paths, into careers, right? Like these are people that could now use these experiences to break into tech and break into gaming. That's one part of the vision too. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, a lot of our kids are are super interested in um, going to school for, you know, some STEM-related degree. And many of these kids are already really advanced with just, you know, technology. And so, you know, we, what, what the one thing I think we're most excited about, about Play Versus, and like Play Versus as into where we are today, because I think a lot of people think about our company as only a, a high school esports league, high school for mm. us our first market and, and our first product within that market is season. So what we do now by allowing kids to play on behalf of their school twice a year, you know, competing for a state championship, that's, that's simply our first product. But one of the things that we're really excited about and frankly, just, you know, you know, honored to be working on um, is the material impact that esports has had on kids. Um, we, we've, seen, we've seen kids improve their grades, improve their attendance, find community, um, be motivated to apply to college, and, and 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 more importantly, just become like better people, right? And so, I think uh, uh, we we we've been able to humanize that through our interactions with kids, through the stories that they write in, their parents write in, their administrators and coaches write in, um, and uh, and it's a pretty amazing surreal feeling. DHH talked about how to build sustainably and why small is not a stepping stone. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark when we got started. Jason was in Chicago. We've never had an outpost in, say, San Francisco or New York or any of these other tech hubs. So the tech hub draw and an ego chamber really didn't have much of an effect on us, which led us with the luxury of going through things from first principles without being corrupted by these incredibly powerful and incredibly persuasive engines of thought that emanate from these uh, tech hubs. And I think that we then feel it as our obligation to go 
those were just our circumstances when we got started. It wasn't sort of a conscious choice. Oh, let's be based in Denmark and in Chicago because that's really a great place to build a company. No, that was just where we were. So those were just our circumstances. What we've still, what we've come to realize later on is that those circumstances were really powerful in terms of driving the way we saw the world. And that we now have an obligation to share that luxury with other people who, who didn't have it. Um, which is kind of, as you say, a, a bit about spinning it on its head. A lot of people think about uh, it, it, the, the best thing in the world if you're a tech company is to be in a tech hub because you have access to all this talent and you have access to all this money and you have access to all these contacts. Yeah, maybe true, but you also get suffocated by all those same things at the same time. And that suffocation is a lot more insidious and hidden than the benefits are. And we need to challenge those drawbacks head on. Amazing. I really feel like you and Jason's voices, which have been saying this for so many years now, have inspired the trend of founders that I'm keeping tabs on now a few years into their startup journey. I'm thinking of people like Ryan of Product Hunt, Sahil of Gumroad, founders who in recent years have spoken up very openly about their very conscious and mindful decision to leave San Francisco. In a previous episode of the of the show, Sahil spoke about the exact same thing you're talking about, which is like the toxic side of being immersed in that culture and how narrow-minded it makes you and how transactional relationships become and you know the personal impact that had on him. Ryan recently relocated to LA. He shared an update on Twitter and a very long thread, but he also said that, you know, he was excited about the opportunity to change his environment and see how that, you know, new experience could impact his product. So I really hope that we do see, you know, more fragmentation and just like more wide distribution of of where people are starting out, which is awesome. One of the things I kind of wanted to dive a bit deeper into is, um, these sort of um, ideological fallacies that you always sort of point out. So in the most recent book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, you talk about this analogy of like the battlefield. You know, startup founders buy into these ideas that, you know, it's a war zone. I, I even think of that Peter Thiel book that everyone always raves about, you know, you know, zero to one. It's like, you have to dominate. Otherwise, there's no point being in business. And what I liked in that chapter of the book is that you kind of talk about you and Jason being more like pacifists, you know, where you're just focused on your own business and not out to kill your competitor. Could you just elaborate a bit more on that? Because so many people are stuck in that war zone ideology and you're clearly not. <laughs> so yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it's it's a great example of how much language and framing ends up uh, dictating your thoughts and dictating not just your thoughts, but then how you go about business. It's so much easier to excuse bad practices if you think you're at war, if you think that this is survival, that you are literally going to be killed unless you do worse than your competition. I think uh, the example that always comes to mind for me with this is, is Uber. So Uber has probably racked up the greatest list of transgressions of any major unicorn startups that I can remember. If you, if you do an index search on Uber scandals, it usually is a couple of pages long and it just covers a few years. And you go, how does a company end up so morally bankrupt as to be involved with so many scandals at the same time? These are not 
independent, isolated incidents. They're absolutely founded on an ideology that anything goes. And that ideology is often tied explicitly into the war uh, metaphor, right? We're at war with regulators. We're at war with competitors. So sabotage or espionage or any of these other warlike tactics they're totally kosher. This is totally cool because this is what we have to do to dominate. And that's where even the goal, I think, needs to be knocked down. That, as you say, with this binary, literally binary distinction, as uh, Peter Thiel posits with zero to one, right? Like either you're zero or, or you're one. It's a really depressing way of viewing the world. It's a really binary, black and white way of viewing the world and viewing business and viewing a measure of success that the only way your success is if you have crushed everything else and captured everyone else. That is just, I think, on the face of it, thoroughly inhumane in its most literal sense. And why are we inspiring startup founders and, and under other entrepreneurs to aspire to this. This seems a path to a really bad society. Not the least if you just take it on its pure merits that there will be a tiny handful of monopolistic winners who will sit with everything and dictate everything for, for the rest of us. Is is that a place we want to live? And and if so, why? It to me just sounds like complete dystopia. And we're actually already living that in in many parts of the business, right? Technology is dominated by these huge monopolistic big tech corporations who've now, thankfully, been shown over the past uh let's say three or four years to not be quite as benevolent as perhaps we or some thought that they were at the time. And I think that this is part of the change in the conversation that's really healthy, that we've gone from everyone thinking the greatest thing in the world would be to be Mark Zuckerberg and to have Facebook, to I would probably say far more people now are thinking, actually, A, I don't want Facebook. I don't want Facebook's problems. C, I don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg. Like that doesn't sound like a calm, nice existence. Yes, maybe he is a billionaire, but if you think of sort of the stresses and, and the impact and the harm and the responsibility and the shame that he must sit with for what he has inflicted upon the world, you'd go like, why would I want that? So I think if we can start by having a takedown of the past uh, idols. We can start building up some healthier models of what we should try to emulate instead. And that emulation, A, shouldn't be, I want to be king instead of the king. That maybe the emulation should be, we shouldn't have a king. That we should abolish the royalty setup, the monopolistic big tech setup, and not just all aspire to be one of a tiny cabal of people who control the world. That we could instead inspire to be part of a larger community and society where we all have a stake in it. We all have some power, but not overwhelming power. We don't have the power to dictate markets. We don't have the power to dictate customers. We simply have to compete in the most gentle sense of the word by saying, I'm putting the best product I know how to build on the market. Some customers are going to respond to them, not all of them. And the customers who do respond are authentically choosing out of their own free will. They're not being killed. They're not being forced through ecosystem lock-in. They're not being otherwise pushed or forced into using our software. They're simply using our software because they want to. So 
that's what we try to do at Basecamp. We try to simply just build the best system that we know how, put it on the market, and then appeal to a small but uh, sustainable group of customers who want to pay us on a monthly basis to use a nice product. It really doesn't have to be that complicated. And I think once you've knocked down the false aspirations and the false idols of a previous era of uh, monopolistic tech being this great thing, you'll start to recognize the beauty of small, the beauty of medium-sized. Another uh, touch point we have for this is that small is not a stepping stone. There's nothing to apologize for, for having a company of 10 people or 20 people or 50 people or 100 people. It is not just a, a, a station on the road to becoming a company of 10,000. It is actually a wonderful destination in and of itself. And for the vast majority of companies, they should be happy being there forever. That this obsession with growth, this obsession with all growth all of the time until you've run out of things to grow through, that's the ideology of cancer, not the ideology of sound, healthy business uh, approaches. And and I think we need to eradicate that in, in some extent, at least as the dominant uh, ideology. There'll always be people who want to be, well, I want to be king instead of the king. Well, okay, fine. That's fine. It should, just shouldn't be all of us. There should be far more uh, aspirations and paths open to entrepreneurs and to companies to pursue in full harmony with themselves, where they don't feel bad about where they are. They don't feel bad about only being a $10 million a year company. They don't feel bad about not living up to whatever ideals for uh, a slam dunk, one hit it out of the park, unicorn success that the venture capital pipeline uh, kind of tries to get you to buy into. Hey, it's Abadesi. Before we wrap up, I want to take a few seconds to tell you about a new podcast I started listening to. It's called the Good Night Sleep Project Podcast, and I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're not getting as much sleep as you should, or if you suffer from a sleep condition like chronic snoring, sleep apnea, neck or back pain, interrupted sleep, or insomnia. Once or twice a week, its host Richard Jacobs brings in a sleep doctor, psychologist, inventor, or some other highly respected sleep expert and gets them to spill the beans on innovative new treatments. Basically, new things you can try to overcome common sleep problems and get the good night's sleep we all need. Find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, or pretty much any of the other main podcast platforms. Again, it's called the Good Night Sleep Project Podcast. Check it out. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you.